0: and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au.
2: Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode.
0: Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining Palestine Remembered for another show this week in commemoration of Invasion Day. Unfortunately, we weren't able to protest, as those in Melbourne will know, due to the COVID spikes. I hope you watched those dawn services and did what you could to commemorate Invasion Day and the dispossession of our Indigenous brothers and sisters from their land, cruelly stolen, sovereignty never ceded. This land will always be, always was, and will always be Aboriginal land. And from this colony to the colony that is in Palestine, we know Uh, only too well the struggles of our Indigenous brothers and sisters as they struggle for self-determination and as we do and we share with them the unbreakable spirit of an Indigenous population with their connection to their ancestral lands. Stay listening for a repeat of last year's Jerusalem Peace Prize with Dr Michaela Sahar and Professor Gary Foley, a truly wonderful event and a wonderfully inspiring Indigenous activist. Gary Foley.
1: It's my great honour to be interviewing you today, Dr Gary, as the recipient of this year's Jerusalem Peace Prize. I wonder if you might tell us a bit about those formative years of activism with Paul Coe and others.
2: When I moved to Sydney in 1966, there were 1500 Aboriginal people living in inner city Sydney in Redfern. was the aboriginal community after the 1967 referendum the apartheid system in new south wales was beginning to to break down literally tens of thousands of aboriginal people who'd been incarcerated in uh, in the reserve system in new south wales were suddenly abandoned just one day you know and um, that led to a mass exodus to from the rural areas in new south wales into sydney so that when I first moved to Redfern, about 1,500 Aboriginal people. Within three years, there were 35,000 Aboriginal people. It's the biggest Aboriginal community that's ever existed in the history of Australia. And the one thing everybody in that community had in common was poverty. Uh, we, were, we were a community of, of landless refugees in our own land, you know. The, the police harassment and intimidation that was occurring in Redfern was what directly led into. Um, my becoming politically involved. I was thrust in it. I didn't really have much choice, you know. Um, There was a small group of us young people in Redfern who were determined to do something about the blatant police harassment and intimidation that was happening in the community and uh, (laughs) we were very young. I mean I was 17 or 18. Uh, The other people around me who Uh, got together and decided to do something about this police campaign we're all teenagers. Mm. We set about um, to politically educate ourselves uh, determined to do something about the police and so adopting some ideas that we'd um, picked up from the Black Panther Party in America we decided we would set up a what we called a pig patrol like the Black Panthers did. Except that our pig patrol in Sydney would not be one that was walking around with guns, which is what the Panthers did. But we thought that if we could collect enough information on what the police were doing in our community, uh, then we could uh, maybe do something about it. So we, we set up a surveillance operation on the police and we gathered an, an enormous amount of information about what they were doing. We ended up after a few months with a big pile of information, but not sure what to do with it. By that stage, Paul Coe had begun a law degree at the University of New South Wales. The only person we knew of any consequence in society was the Dean of the Law Faculty. So that was Professor Hal Wooten. And so we took this stuff out to Professor Wooten. We want you to read it. We'll be back in a week to talk to you about it. We went back a week later and Professor Wooten, who was an extremely conservative, affluent, prominent member of the legal profession, Dean of the Law Faculty, Never met an Aboriginal in his life until he met Paul Coe. When we first showed him the information, he wouldn't believe it, he didn't believe us. And so we said, well, you know, come into Redfern and see for yourself, prof. (laughs) That was quite an amazing night when the professor came into Redfern and saw for himself. But that in turn led to us stealing another idea from um, the African-American civil rights movement, uh, and the Black Panthers in particular, we said to help Professor Wooden, why can't we set up free shopfront legal aid centres run by lawyers. Professor Wooden told us all 600 reasons why it couldn't be done and six weeks later we opened the doors of the first free shopfront legal aid centre in Australia. We introduced the concept of free legal aid to Australia. A couple of years later Gough Whitlam come along and um, uh, made it universal. Mm-hmm. Ten years later Bob Ork come along and took it all away. By black power we meant uh, Aboriginal self-determination. Black power means the uh, economic independence to enable black people to be able to determine their own destinies.
1: Dr Gary, one of the things that you're particularly well known for, and I suppose related to this um, discussion so far, is as one of the founders of the 10 Embassy in Canberra. This seems to encapsulate your flair for incisive and memorable political action. And I wonder if you might tell us a bit about how the embassy was conceived and what its purpose was at the time.
2: The Black Power Movement, the Land Rights Movement, the Self-Determination Movement, call it whatever you will, back in 1971 they had created, we had created, enough controversy for the, the McMahon government and the then Prime Minister Billy McMahon to um, become unnerved And because he was unnerved, he made a fatal political mistake by deciding that he needed to make a grand prime ministerial statement on land rights. To make things worse, he chose to make this statement on the most politically sensitive of all days on the political calendar for Aboriginal people, the 26th of January, Mm. Invasion Day. Aboriginal people have been protesting on the 26th of January ever since 1938. Mm. And so the Prime Minister chose to make this ill-fated statement on on Invasion Day. And the statement was that his government would never grant land rights, which Mm. was, you know, a a very provocative thing for him to have done. A group of Aboriginal people gathered in Redfern that night and decided to dispatch a, a small group of four guys to Canberra to set up a protest on the lawns of Parliament North. All the intention was, was to uh, get a photograph in the paper the next day. But when the police come along, the police who had been expected to arrest these guys, the police informed the guys that there was no law to camp on the lawns of Parliament House, And so that the four boys who went down, Michael Anderson, Billy Craigie, Bertie uh, Williams and Tony Currie accidentally discovered a loophole in Canberra Law. The police said as long as there was only ever 11 tents there, there was nothing they could or would do. they said if we put 12 tents there, they'd deem us a camping area and move us. And so one of the guys, Tony Currie, who was the poet of the Black Power Movement, he was the guy who came up with the idea. He said, uh, the Prime Minister's statement has effectively declared us aliens in our own land. If we're aliens in our own land, and we should have an embassy like all the other aliens, only our embassy won't be a big um, flash uh, mansion up in in Narrabunda somewhere in Canberra. Our embassy will reflect the reality of Aboriginal living conditions in 1972. It will be a tent on the lawns of Parliament House. It was a stroke of genius. I mean, you know, it was purely by accident they discovered the loophole in Canberra law. But then, to be able to then turn that against the McMahon government over the successive next six months, um, Gough Whitlam always said that the Aboriginal embassy was the final nail in the coffin, not only of the McMahon government, but 23 consecutive years of Conservative government. When I was at the Aboriginal embassy, I was 21 years old, and in my entire life at that point, there had never been anything but a Conservative government in Canberra. In the end, McMahon made another mistake by trying to smash us and that just uh, generated all sorts of, uh, well, it was the end of the McMahon government. The embassy was a spectacular success in terms of making the rest of the world aware of the struggle for justice in Australia and making the world aware that it had to do with Indigenous people and it had to do with land, you know, as the key issue.
1: I wonder if you'd be able to comment on what's made it so capable of remaining current or renewing itself through the shifting landscape of political barriers towards um, First Nation rights in this country.
2: Well, it helps remind people, you know, that these are unresolved issues, Mm. you know, and I say to my students that the embassy is still there today as a, Testament, if you like, to mm. government duplicity and deceit that we've been subjected to constantly to this day. Doctor
1: Gary, we find ourselves in the in the nineteen eighties now and um, I can't I can't not ask you about your um, involvement in the film and theatre scene around that time and in particular your performance in the cult classic Dogs in Space. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you became enmeshed in the filmmaking and creative scene and how that maybe connected with some of your other projects at the time.
2: Dogs in Space is late in the piece. I mean, (laughs) I managed to con my way to the 1978 Cannes Film Festival on the Riviera when I um, was in Phil Noyce's first feature film, Back Road. Whilst I thought it would be fun to go to the Cannes Film Festival. More importantly, what came out of my uh, going to the Cannes Film Festival was that I met and made connections with some, some really important German filmmakers, Werner Herzog, Wim Wenders, a woman called um, Nina Gladitz, who made a film called Better Active Today than Radioactive Tomorrow. And Nina Gladitz's uh, partner at the time, was ahead of the German Greens, which gave us an entry into severely embarrassing uh, the then Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser by setting up a campaign, primarily in Germany but also in the rest of Western Europe, an, an awareness raising campaign amongst uh, Europeans to make them more aware of what was going on with us here, so that any of the film stuff that I ever did, I fell into accidentally, if mm-hmm. you like. And it wasn't the primary sort of idea in my mind to become a film star or nothing. It uh, always served the the further purpose of spreading our message further. And the film with Michael Hutchinson, Dogs in Space, um, that in turn led to me being involved in a project called Building Bridges, which was an Mm anti-bicentennial music project in 1988 where just about everybody, who was anybody in the Australian music industry at the time donated um, songs to this double album, which raised money for the uh, anti-bicentennial movement at the time, and at the same time spread the word uh, further again about um, Aboriginal issues. You know, it was always at the end of the day about achieving a, a political result. You know,
1: mm. you've led us straight on to the anti-bicentennial work, which I wanted to ask you a little bit about. Was the building bridges one of the highlights of that intervention?
2: I I would argue that the highlight of the bicentennial for us was when you had the biggest ever gathering of Aboriginal people in Australian history. Over a hundred thousand or more people march through the centre of Sydney Mm. at the height of the the great masturbation of the nation that was going on around us, (laughs) you know the only weaponry we really had to move Australian governments was the potential we had to embarrass them in the international political arena and you know Australian governments have always going back to Menzies time been um, very sensitive Mm -hmm. about the image of Australia internationally and we were were perfectly placed to disrupt (laughs) that for them you know so it was always fun as well I suppose But the bicentennial was a uh, major thing. I think that, um, again, you know, greater numbers of people around the world, increasing numbers, became more aware of what our situation was. And that's all we needed them to do, be aware, just to know, you know?
1: Dr Gary, I'd I'd like to ask you what it was that brought you to be such a fine supporter of the Palestinian people and how you first became aware of the, the Palestinian struggle?
2: I moved to Melbourne more or less permanently around about the end of 1972. I came here to learn from the person who became my great mentor, Bruce McGuinness. Bruce McGuinness is a legendary Aboriginal leader from Victoria, my best friend for the last 40 years of his life. Um, but Bruce was, at the time, a student at Monash Uni, and so I was hanging around with him, learning of him, at least that's what I told him. Uh, much to his irritation at times. But one day in 1973, Bruce drove us to Monash Uni. We arrived at the Uni, and earlier in the week, the Om Kippur War had started. And Monash, back then, was a hotbed of um, radical Zionist students, which hadn't been an issue, or I hadn't really noticed much up until this day. We arrived at the University and the Jewish students had set up a, a table in the student union to raise money for the state of Israel. Bruce and I arrived at uni this day. We walked into the student union, and um, here was a, a gang of people uh, bashing up this one guy. Bruce and I come from Fitzroy, you know, you don't do that. That's not the done thing. It's not how you fight in the streets of Fitzroy. And so, we just saw this one guy getting bashed. We thought, there's 12 of them and there's one of him. Um, let's even up the odds. So we stepped into the melee, <laughs> uh, only to be then set upon ourselves by these students. And then once, once they started beating me and Bruce up, I mean, the, the lefty students at Monash knew who we Bruce and I were. And so they stepped in to rescue us. And in the, as this big brawl started in the student union, Bruce and I grabbed the guy who was originally getting beaten up and pulled him out of the crowd and rescued him. And we said, what was that all about, mate? He said, I'm a Palestinian. I knew very little about the situation of Palestinians at, at that moment. Muhammad went on to become a really close friend of Bruce and I for the rest, rest of Bruce's life. Muhammad's still a close friend of mine now. But it was Muhammad who began to educate or make Bruce and I aware, and it didn't take much in terms of uh, the making us aware of what the situation of Palestinians was before we sort of Bruce and I said, Well, hang on a sec, that's like us. As Bruce and I gained a better understanding and we started talking to some of our political associates, you know, in that were in the same sort of branch of the Aboriginal movement as us. And Muhammad was the first one to to begin process of my education and awareness of the situation of Palestinian people. A little while later, we met up with Ali Kazak. but even before Ali came to Australia, I can remember us having meetings with uh, uh, Palestinian people in Lebanese house upstairs in the ni- early 1970s. The more I understand uh, to this day about uh, the situation of Palestinian people, I can see the, Parallel between their experience and ours in terms of in terms of having their homelands occupied and colonised, you know.
1: Something I've noticed in the archival um, project that you've been working on for a long time, um, Kooriweb and then and then GuriWeb is you're not just documenting the achievements, but there's also a host of clippings that really document the landscape of a sort of um, violent, systemically racist um, history um, in, in, in Australia. And one article that jumped out at me from your archives of the Dawn magazine, uh, Dr. Gary, was um, entitled, A citizen must be loyal. Patriotism has no colour line. And a quote late in the article from someone in the armed services says, there are no Aborigines here, only Australians. I mention this because the question of destruction or preservation of racist material was given enormous attention in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter movement, catalyzed by the state killing of Mr. Floyd in, mm-hmm. in the US, centred the question of what places do these symbols of colonialism have in the 21st century? I think you've been known, Dr Carey, to advocate for the preservation of these colonial artefacts. And I wonder if you could say a bit about why that is and how it should be done.
2: I've got uh, my students writing essays about what to do with colonial monuments and statues. And I fluctuate. On one hand, uh, I'd like to see them knocked down, but then on the other hand, there's a purpose that they can serve in, in terms of being a reminder of what once was. And that doesn't mean we leave Captain Cook in Hyde Park in Sydney. Mm. I mean, take him and stick him in our, in our Colonial Monuments Museum, you know, an open park. I'll have the, the stall where we sell the, the balloons with the red paint in them that people can chuck at the statues it's a tough thing. I mean, I instinctively, as somebody who has defaced Captain Cook in Hyde Park in Sydney probably more times than anyone else in the last 50 years, it gives me a sense of security knowing that he's there to be thrown at. No. <laughs> as you can see, I'm of two minds. One one mind says melt him down and, and turn him into something useful. Um, another says, uh, well let's maybe just change the plaque on Mm. the base, you know, Mm. make it a more appropriate um, um, statement about who he was and what he, you know, what his significance might have been, you know.
1: Dr. Gary, one of the great gifts you've given the Palestinian community in recent years was the inaugural Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference in 2019 that brought together a series of people from the First Nations and Palestinian communities um, from around Australia artists, scholars and and community leaders to further the connections between our, our two communities. As one of the participants, I know that the Palestinians involved in this were found it to be immensely powerful and a deeply humbling experience because while we are a displaced people, we're also painfully aware of how our dispossession contributes to Australian settlerism How would you like to see our Palestinian community doing better in supporting Australian Indigenous people? And perhaps given your flair for political action, what do you think the logical next steps are in this solidarity work?
2: I think that there's a lot more room for cultural and a range of, you know, not necessarily political exchanges. I think that there's a lot more to be done in making both of our communities more aware of each other's situation and I've got to say that in terms of the Black Palestine Solidarity Conference I think it's important to pay tribute to Susanna Henty who uh, was the co-organiser with me of that conference the number of uh, significant and eminent uh, indigenous people who attended that conference and who uh, took something away from it in terms of their own personal awareness and knowledge and other things there's lots more room for us to be mutually supportive of each other because it's not... I mean, I don't see the Palestinian community in, in, in Australia as, as really in any way contributing to the oppression or dispossession of Aboriginal people here in Australia, you know. Uh, I, I view the Palestinian community here to be like... The community I was in in Redford in the old days, a, comu- you know, a community of landless refugees, and denied the opportunity of, um, you know, living a meaningful life in their own yeah. homeland and exercising their own self-determination. Mm. And so I'd, I'd argue that there's a lot more that both of our communities can do in, in terms of the developing uh, greater mutual uh, awareness and support of each other. It's pretty clear that both our communities continue in our homelands to be oppressed and denied, you know, denied basic human rights of um, self-determination, you know, and genuine independence. I'd like to see the day when both our peoples uh, have attained their freedom and justice. I've got a horrible feeling that I'm not gonna last long enough to see it. It, and it's always been my hope. Ever since Muhammad first began to educate me and Bruce McGuinness and I about the situation of the Palestinian people, you know, I've, you, I've felt nothing but a strong empathy. How can you not, you know? Um, when I think about my experience in growing up in, you know, sett- settler colonial Australia, I can, you know, I can feel nothing but empathy for people in similar situations to us and especially the situation of the Palestinian people where you've got you know all the bullies in the world lined up against you you know but we have hope
1: (laughs) what I'd love to hear about dr. Gary is some concluding remarks from you on what just pieces could be and might look
2: like it's a difficult question I mean possibly because I I can't imagine you know the situation of both our peoples is so fraught what i would see for us to be able to determine our own destiny decide our own future in our own land in a, in accordance with our wishes palestinian people and all peoples whose uh, homelands have been occupied and colonized by an invader all people would desire that you know surely by saying that I'm not advocating that, no point in advocating that Aboriginal people kick everybody back into the sea, that's ne- never going to happen. So we've got to find some sort of an accommodation uh, where there is genuine mutual respect, you know, between the coloniser and the colonised.
1: Would you like to make any further comments?
2: I want to say that uh, I'm deeply honoured to re- to receive this uh, Award. I, when it was first put to me, I was I was a bit uh, taken aback because I I really don't think that I deserve this. I'm happy to accept the award on behalf of uh, all of those uh, Aboriginal brothers and sisters of mine who, over the years, have uh, stood with me, stood with Ali, and and other actions that we've done over the years in support of the Palestinian people. Uh, It's uh, an issue that uh, remains very uh, important to me. I want to be able to express my gratitude to the Palestinian community for this award. I can assure you that whilst there is still a little bit of breath left in these ageing bones that uh, I'll always stand with my Palestinian brothers and sisters, you know as I would uh, expect them to stand with us you know in our mutual struggle for justice and freedom.
1: thank you so much dr. Carey. It's been mm-hmm. an immense honor to interview you today and thank you for your fascinating and rich and fulsome answers to my questions.
0: <laughs> dr. Gary Foley, your generosity of time, the way you answer those questions really I hope that many people for many years to come will see this Q&A as an archive and part of the body of work that you've contributed to Australia and to Indigenous society. And it's a great honour for me on behalf of Australians for Palestine and the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network to award you the Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize. It's a particular prize It's very special to both Sonia Kaka and myself in that initial decision to create this award and award it annually to australians who have made a significant effort to palestine during their careers that we would reclaim jerusalem as ours and it would be an opportunity for us to have a gala event where we could celebrate the work and life of people like yourself your years of activism for the indigenous people of this country is without peer and something that you should be truly proud of your years of support of the palestinians your understanding of the fact that we're both struggling against settler colonialist structures that have embedded racist policies that deny us our agency, deny us our self-determination. Your ability to connect those over now close to 50 years from that first incident, Yom Kippur War at Monash. The thing that I'm so proud of and what you represent is the undeniable unbreakability of indigenous peoples and their desire to stay on their homelands, to seek self-determination, to live with peace and justice. And as they've never managed to break you, and they will never manage to break our Indigenous brothers and sisters here, they'll never break the Palestinians either. Congratulations. It is a great honour for me to present this to you. And I look forward to next year being an in-person event and we'll have a new winner. Look forward to you being there and where we can publicly acknowledge you for your work. Congratulations. <laughs> Good day, <mate>. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was Dr. Michaela Sahar and the 2021 Jerusalem al Peace Prize winner, Dr. Gary Foley. Be sure to go to the podcast. There'll be a link there so that you can watch the entire event if you did miss it.